This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 2nd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court's decision in Carpenter was meant to be narrow, but it has implications for how courts might think about government use of your cell data in the future and how we think about who owns that data to begin with. Cato's Patrick Eddington and Matthew Feeney lay out what we might expect following the Carpenter decision. In the Supreme Court's recent Carpenter decision, the court found, yeah, in most instances, uh, asterisk, uh, the police will need a warrant to use triangulated cell phone data to, uh, as a forensic tool to find out uh, certain information. So it, what, is that, what are we to take away from that in terms of going forward and, and looking at how governments routinely make use of data that you and I, as a technical legal matter, do not uh, possess. It is not part of our effects and papers and such. Well, I think it's definitely uh, a win for privacy advocates, uh, the, the case that you're describing. Uh, I do want to caution that there's a very narrow ruling. So as you alluded to, uh, this involves uh, cell site location information as revealed by uh, phone data, but uh, the the court was very very careful uh, in its uh, in its opinion to say that this this case actually involves the physical tracking of someone using this particular kind of data for more than seven days. Uh, it's a very specific kind of surveillance that they're targeting, uh, and they made sure to mention that the ruling does not impact what. Uh, I believe the Chief Justice called conventional surveillance methods like security cameras and things like that. So it's a it's an important case, uh, but it's also narrow and leaves a lot of surveillance techniques available to law enforcement without warrant. And I think to just kind of go back to something that you mentioned at the outset, uh, Caleb, I think from my perspective at least, uh, and I wrote this piece in The Hill uh, last week that kind of addresses this, I, I think that any kind of data, essentially, that is generated by your devices, in my mind anyway, is something that is your property uh, that you do own, and you're paying for it one way or another. So if, if I happen to buy you know, an iPhone like I did earlier this year, replace the one that I had uh, finally gotten tired of, um, you know, that's mine. You know, in a, in a traditional Fourth Amendment sense, that's mine. And just because I have a relationship with a provider uh, in this case, Verizon, uh, I don't believe that I give up my rights essentially to kind of have maximum control over that data. I mean, the entire device itself, its software has all kinds of features built in essentially to allow me to restrict the kind of data uh, that I want, you know, third parties, to, to use the phrase that we hate so much, uh, have access to, you know, literally on an app by app basis to include uh, the device manufacturer itself, Apple. I can choose not to share diagnostic data with them. I do share it with them because I want them to have the opportunity to make a better product going down the line. But I, I have to say that I found myself literally cheering almost every paragraph of Justice Gorsuch's dissent in this because I think he really is trying to steer his colleagues back into a much more traditional and I think appropriate understanding of what the Fourth Amendment is really all about. And, it, and I would agree that... This is a complicated issue, and, and it can get a little bit messy here. But I think we have to focus on overarching principles, and the overarching principle should be that if you own the device or that you are using the device and it has got your data on it uh, or, or it utilizes data that you have to have in order to make the device function, 
that is something that should be treated as yours. And it's interesting that literally uh, in, in the opening paragraph of the decision, they called it Carpenter's data, right? His cell site location data was his data. Well, by that logic, everything else should have been too. And that was what Gorsuch essentially was pointing out and essentially kind of the the, the tortured logic uh, of of the majority opinion. So um, I am a police chief or a mayor or a city council member or a state legislator or a governor. And I'm thinking about, well, how do I make sure that the the laws and, uh, you know, uh, city ordinances and things like that properly comply. I'm doing my due diligence here to try to comply with this ruling. What what do you tell me uh, about uh, trying to make sure that I'm keeping the streets safe and uh, protecting against bank robbers or people who rob cell phone stores, for example, um, in the future and uh, still, you know, protect people's privacy as best I can? Yeah, so uh, police uh, after Carpenter don't have to worry about using security cameras or using uh, aerial surveillance or facial recognition technology. Uh, They would, uh, in the post-Carpenter world, they would have to worry about using cell site location information for more than seven days to track someone. So uh, my reading of the the opinion is uh, if you are a police chief and you wanted to track a suspect for two days using this, you're still kosher uh, without a warrant. So it's from, from I think most law enforcement uh, will not have uh, a lot of surveillance technology change this way. Uh, I'm, I imagine there will be a couple of investigations that are going to have to change uh, in the wake of this. But I think uh, Pat alluded to something uh, very important, which is that, that Gorsuch seems to be trying to uh, nudging his colleagues in a certain direction. Uh, it's not a direction that clearly a majority on the court share, uh, but it's important uh, and lays the groundwork for uh, potential future cases. So while Carpenter might not be as revolutionary uh, as other Fourth Amendment cases uh, in the past, it certainly, I, I, I think, in the future will be viewed as uh, the beginning of some kind of important change. So to your question about policymakers, um, whether they are the civilian elected leadership or whether they are uh, the head of, let's say, the Virginia State Police or whatever, my advice is if you don't have technologically competent people advising you, you're doing it wrong. That's one of the first places that I think folks need to start at the policy level is hire people uh, to advise them on these issues. You can't just have the lawyers in the room, right? Because While there are some lawyers in this country who are, in fact, very, very technologically adept, most are not, and that applies to judges as well. I like to go back to the Microsoft case back in uh, the 1999-2000 era when I I take a look at a guy like Thomas Penfield Jackson who absolutely was not technologically savvy, but he had the intelligence to understand that he wasn't, which is why he hired a a special master. Um, This is a a thing that courts can do uh, at the federal level literally bringing in an expert on technology to advise him on whether or not Microsoft or the government were lying to him or being truthful to him about their claims and their you know, respective arguments. And that's the reason why you know, Microsoft was forced to unbundle uh, the Internet Explorer browser uh, and it helped to restore you know, some real competition to the market in that particular area. It's a prime example. It's a straightforward and simple example. And I think policymakers at every level you know, need to be looking to hire people uh, with a technological background and understanding of this stuff 
to help them navigate essentially these kinds of uh, very treacherous waters. Uh, Sarus Faravar is author of a new book called Habeas Data. Uh, he writes at Ars Technica, uh, and he, he writes here recently, shortly after the Carpenter decision, he says, Oakland is now one of a handful of California entities, including Berkeley, Davis, uh, Santa Clara County, that mandates a formal annual report that details, quote, how the surveillance technology was used, among other requirements. Uh, such legislation has been advocated by the ACLU of Northern California, among other groups. Uh, Oakland has also created a Privacy Advisory Commission, or PAC. This body is composed of volunteer commissioners from each city council district. It acts as a privacy check on the city when any municipal entity, typically the police department, wants to acquire a technology that may impact individual privacy. Now, uh, it makes sense to me that uh, cities might do this, but also Oakland and these <laughs> these places in the Bay Area may be special cases in, in the fact that people who live there probably are a little more aware of uh, how uh, technology impacts their privacy than the rest of us are. Yeah, and that's a uh, proposal that's been shared by a few people. So it's not just the ACLU. There's uh, a law professor here in D.C. called... Uh, Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, who's argued for something similar, uh, to maybe toot my own horn, I took to the pages of the New York Times to argue for something similar, which there should be more uh, public uh, engagement with uh, law enforcement when it comes to surveillance tools uh, that are being used. Uh, a good example of why I think this kind of reform is necessary is the uh, aerial surveillance that we saw in Baltimore, uh, where the police, without uh, consulting with the public, and in fact, without even consulting or telling elected officials what was going on, uh, used persistent aerial surveillance equipment to use what its uh, developer calls Google Earth with TiVo. And I think these are uh, surveillance capabilities that have huge implications uh, on not only the Fourth Amendment, but potentially, of course, the, the First Amendment, that these uh, surveillance technologies are uh, recording information about totally legal First Amendment activities, such as protests and religious gatherings. Uh, and it is important that the public uh, be involved in discussions about how to keep their communities safe. Uh, and it's great to uh, hear that uh, this may be an idea that uh, that time has come. You know, with respect to uh, bodies of the kinds that that you described, Caleb, I think. A cautionary note is what's happened to the Federal Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board over the course of the last uh, three to four years. You know, this was one of the uh, recommendations, essentially, the, of the 9-11 Commission, and it took quite a while to actually get it staffed up and, and functioning. And the problem that we have now is that the Trump administration has literally allowed it uh, to go moribund. Uh, I don't even know if we have one of the uh, five slots filled uh, on that on that particular board right now, and they've also, at least according to the appropriations readouts that I've been getting, they've actually cut funding for the entity as well. So, I think those kinds of of independent or semi-independent entities can be of value, but I think you have to have folks that are willing to serve on them for a long time. They need to be properly funded, but above all, they have to have the authority to actually do something right. After uh, the Fairfax County Police effectively assassinated a man in his home three years ago, uh, and after a lot of litigation uh, in, the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors actually set up uh, a citizens review uh, panel, essentially, uh, to handle the Fairfax County Police. But th the reality is it doesn't have any teeth, right? It, do it doesn't have any authority, essentially, to kind of pass judgment uh, on cops who uh, you know, may have violated the law, may have actually taken somebody's life. 
So I, I think I, I'm always leery, uh, and I think this is the, the Article One guy, the, the, the Hill guy coming out of me. I'm always leery about uh, essentially passing off what I think are fundamentally legislative responsibilities to uh, unelected, uh, you know, appointed bodies that are just subject, you know, in my view, to too many whims, uh, including you know appropriations-related whims. So I. I think we'd have to see that used on on a larger scale, and I, and I think on a case by case basis, it's going to depend upon how effective they are. But the more teeth, the more funding, and ultimately the more commitment that people have to it, the more likely it's going to be to succeed. So uh, going forward, um, you know how do, how do how are courts going to look at this, or what are what are some of the emerging issues that that we're going to see? that are going to be particularly problematic. When I talked with Sarus for a Cato Daily podcast recently about his book, you know, there, there is this concern that uh, a lot of the data that uh, is used by police is data that is held by third parties. And of course, that doctrine is, uh, I think, slowly falling out of favor. There's at least two members of the U.S. Supreme Court who think it's uh, basically bunk, it seems. Um, so, uh, you know, going forward, what are the where should people who are concerned about privacy where should they be focusing their attention? Well, there are a whole host of surveillance technologies that I think um, are worthy of attention here. And you're right, Caleb, to point out the the status of the third party doctrine in the wake of Carpenter. So the the opinion in Carpenter is rather interesting because they they want to uh, the the majority want to make sure that they can. Uh, rule in favor of Carpenter without jettisoning this third-party doctrine entirely. So uh, for listeners who aren't aware, the third-party doctrine uh, basically states that you uh, you don't have a expectation of privacy to information you volunteer to third parties, such as banks and phone companies and uh, other entities like that. But the, the majority wrote, given the unique nature of cell site records, this court declines to extend Smith and Miller, which were the cases that... Uh, with the foundation of third-party doctrine, uh, to cover to cover them to cover these records, uh, and and the majority goes on to talk about how with uh, cell site location information you have near GPS level precision, and that uh, the activities here did violate Carpenter's expectation of privacy to his physical location. But of course, there are a lot of surveillance technologies that can uh, reveal your physical location over time. It's certainly not uh, just uh, cell site location information. You can do this with conventional surveillance uh, cameras, which the court uh, made sure to say were still fine. Uh, but you can do it with aerial surveillance. Uh, and you can also, uh, I think in, in the coming years, it will certainly be the case, you will be able to do this uh, quite easily with facial recognition. So uh, it's certainly uh, true to say, I think, that there are a number of uh, techniques and methods and other surveillance technologies that uh, still raise important third-party questions that uh, courts across the country will probably be uh, tackling in the not-too-distant future. I think the, the biggest elephant in the room now, of course, is the fact that Justice Kennedy has announced that he is right. mm -hmm. leaving the bench, right? So, uh, you know, that creates this massive wild card. And if we were to get a, another justice who thinks about these issues the way that Neil Gorsuch does, uh, I would say that that we might actually be on the threshold of a fundamental um, uh, rejuvenation uh, of the Fourth Amendment and related rights. But if we get somebody else who is still wedded uh, to the third-party doctrine at some level, then we may get more Carpenter-like decisions that are relatively narrowly crafted that that continue to allow things that, at least in my mind from a constitutional standpoint, should not be allowed. So, 
essentially stay tuned on this. We'll we'll have to see you know how this whole battle over the new court nominee kind of shakes out because it will absolutely have. I think, profound implications for the topic we've just discussed. Let's close with this, and that is, let's take the Carpenter case um, uh, as it as it was and slap the label national security on it. Um, you know, it, in, it seems that the decision might have come out differently. Well, I, I think... Uh... Chief Justice Roberts, when writing the opinion, was uh, aware of uh, national security and, and does mention that uh, the the holding does not extend to uh, national security investigations. Uh, is my recollection. Uh, so I, I think uh, again, narrow narrow holding. And what what's fascinating to me is this um, really nonsensical notion that federal judges are supposed to show some kind of deference to the executive branch with respect to national security matters and how they uh, impact. The Bill of Rights. There's nothing in Article Three, <laughs> not a word in Article Three, about judges showing deference to the executive branch. In, in fact, the framers had exactly the opposite view of it. They, I think, at the end of the day, they felt like the courts, in many respects, would be kind of the last line of defense against an out of control executive. Uh, but we've seen entirely too many decisions over the course of uh, certainly the last hundred years. I mean, I would definitely go back to courts upholding the Espionage Act and uh, upholding. Um, uh, other things, the um, the entire decision uh, over state secrets privilege, uh, you know, being a prime example of that. So the idea that federal judges ought to be uh, giving the, the executive branch deference in this area at all, I think, is one of the core problems with the federal judiciary today when it comes to trying to restore rights to people. Patrick Eddington is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Matthew Feeney directs Cato's project on emerging technologies. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.